Well, again, welcome to GOC. I'd like to welcome myself back. I was struck not with the coronavirus, but with some virus that was equally awful. And I've been gone for a couple weeks. So thank you to Matt and David for going through Genesis so slowly in my absence uh, and intentionally avoiding what many would consider to be the most difficult chapter in the Old Testament. So those guys spent, I don't know how many hours in Genesis 18 in order to trap me in Genesis 19. Genesis 19 is one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible. And it's a story that I think is, is important that we look at. So I'm grateful actually for the opportunity to talk about the doom of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, just automatically that resonates, doesn't it? I mean, Christianity is already uh, a moral system that our culture finds in its conservative manifestations completely repugnant. The Christian sexual ethic is the predominant component, I think, that in this day and age is seen as something so peculiar and so awful and audacious and offensive that I'm sure as you continue to pursue your studies in this fine academic institution, uh, are increasingly aware of the danger of saying what it is you believe the Bible says. Well, tonight we have the opportunity to look at Sodom and Gomorrah and though the primary point of Genesis 19 is not an expose of what the Bible says about homosexuality. Instead, it has a much more relevant point, uh, but it doesn't shy away from the Bible's clear teaching on sexual ethics either. And so, I want you to understand the flow of this story in Genesis 19. And I'd like to start by just reading it to you. Remember, We didn't choose this just out of random. We've been working through the book of Genesis all the way from chapter 12. We've been looking at the life, or better, the faith of Father Abraham. And as we've studied Abraham's faith, we've seen that his faith is like ours. He wasn't a figure who is particularly, I guess you could say religious, but Abraham was someone who was a pagan and worshipped the moon and came from a place called Ur. And it was because of God's kindness and God's revelation of Himself that He opened Abram's eyes to become His follower. And we've been following the faith and trials and journeys of Abraham, God's chosen servant. And now we find ourselves in Genesis 19. So let me begin by reading to you uh, at least most of Genesis 19 Uh, We'll also look at the epilogue together, but uh, I'll just go ahead and read through verse 29 for now. Uh, A story that's very well known. It's very graphic. So buckle your seatbelt. Genesis 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, However, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. 
And he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we might know them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations or had known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. And they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien, sojourner, and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. And then the men said to Lot, whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before Yahweh that Yahweh has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, up, get out of this place for Yahweh will destroy the city. But it appeared to his sons-in-law to be joking. And when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the man seized his hand, and the hand of his wife, and the hands of his two daughters. For the compassion of Yahweh was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. And it came about when they had brought them outside that one said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley except uh, escape, escape to the mountains lest you be swept away. But Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life, but I cannot escape to the mountains lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. And therefore the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. 
Now Abraham rose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before Yahweh. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a kiln. Thus it became about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. That is the very word of the living God. Some of you have grown up in this fair town. Others of you are recent transplants by way of Westwood. I've lived here in Los Angeles for 15 years, and I am continually amazed at how unamazed I am with things that used to amaze me. When I moved here from my provincial village of Zoar, um, also known as Albuquerque, New Mexico, I came to, to study in seminary to get my, my master's and um, to try to survive you know, three years in this sprawling metropolis that looked like a place I'd heard of called Gotham. So uh, I just was, I was so stunned by how long it would take to do ordinary things, you know, to go to uh, a grocery store sounding so, you know, innocent, but with a name like Ralph's. But I mean, it just took a long time to go to the store in LA. It was, there was every parking space was full in this town all the time. And the, the freeways known as this complex numerical system, I, I thought I would never understand. I remember being on the phone once, and there was phones back then, uh, with my wife, and she had just visited her sister, who was a flight attendant, uh, down at her stopover in LAX. And so she was coming home to our little apartment in North Hollywood, which is neither North nor Hollywood. And, and as she, she had me on the phone, she was kind of crying, and, and she was feeling lost, and, and she had made her way almost to Ventura, um, so she just, you know, that, that 101 thing uh, threw her off a little bit. Uh, and now we laugh when we think about that, and we can speak with fluency about the 118, the only functional freeway in, in California. Or we talk about the 5 or the 405 or taking the, the 110 and, and a thousand other options that are all now just part of, of life here. I used to get a sore throat when we would go out of town for a while and back to LA because the air is visible here. And now my throat just, it's, it always hurts. So <laughs> it's just become part of it. And, and I actually like this place now for some reason. And, you know, it's, it's acclimating as I think what it is. It's growing used to something. And uh, in my case, it's, it's a fair city uh, like LA in Lot's case, it was a city that was going to cost him his integrity and his family and almost his life. And if you've been following the story, it doesn't start in Genesis 19. It actually starts way back towards chapter 13 when Abram and Lot are together. Their families are joined together, their kinfolk, and at that point, we're given a little hint, some very heavy-handed foreshadowing in chapter 13, verse 
8 is where it starts. Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we're brothers. Is not the whole land before you. Please separate from me to the left, then I'll go to the right. Or to the right, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. And this was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah like the garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. That little allusion to the story that we find now five, six chapters later reminds us that there was a choice made. You know, Lot was blessed by God because he was closely attached to Abraham. And because God had favored Abraham and had blessed Abraham, he had in turn blessed Lot by way of association. Lot is never portrayed in this story as the object of God's attention, but he does become the object of God's compassion because of his association with Uncle Abraham. Abraham already has saved Lot's life. And the kind of previews of things to come have also pointed towards mentions of Sodom. First with the king of Sodom in chapter 14, verse 20. And then Sodom is is mentioned again, almost as it's intensely getting closer to this Pivotal, this pivotal moment in the narrative as Sodom is talked about in just kind of a passing way in chapter 15. And then again, the story goes back to the primary character of Abraham. And as you saw in the last few weeks with Matt and David teaching you through this passage, uh, Abraham was very concerned about his nephew Lot. Verse 16 of chapter 18 says, the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And Yahweh said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I've chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice, in order that the Lord may bring Abraham what he's spoken about him. And Yahweh said, verse 20, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly serious. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. You looked at that story last week, and it was a a, a negotiation that Abraham had with God, uh, treating God like a friend and, and asking God if he would possibly save the righteous remnant from Sodom and Gomorrah, the the plain cities that were the focus of God's wrath. And he he asks that that God would please spare all the righteous people there. If he could find uh, even a few righteous people, 50 righteous people, would God spare the city? And, And in this kind of game show negotiation, it goes to 45 and then it goes down to 40 and And then he keeps beseeching the Lord to not be angry and says, well, what about if it's 30? And and what about 20? And God continues to show mercy and says, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. 
And in his final plea, he says, Then I said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I'll not destroy it on account of the ten. And as soon as he'd finished speaking to Abraham, Yahweh departed and Abraham returned to his place. And so the tension of this narrative is very high. And it's there that we find the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that famous story that concludes with verses 30 through 38. If you thought a story in the Jewish Scriptures of homosexual gang rape was not graphic enough, well, read verse 30 through 38, and guess what you get? You get an incestual relationship provoked by Lot's two daughters in the town that he begged to go to, and because they don't have husbands there, and because they've adopted the morals of their former residents, they get their dad drunk, and one night after the other, find themselves pregnant by their father. I mean, it's one of the most horrifying stories in the entire Bible. And it's one that's come to be known as sort of one of the, the central sticking points in the discussion or debates about, you know, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality, when really the intention of this story, though that particular, uh, that particular issue is certainly featured here, What's happening here is something far more subtle than this foul crowd outside of Lot's door. What's happening here is a portrait that I think will be familiar to all of you who claim faith in Jesus Christ. Because what's happened to Lot is what happens to anyone who gets used to something, who grows familiar with it. And whether it's a city that's you know, mainly harmless like Los Angeles, or whether it's something more serious like asbestos in a classroom that after a long period of time starts to make people feel sick. Not, not this one, I'm sure they tested it. Um, or, you know, a carbon uh, monoxide sort of poisoning that's a slow leak, it's gradual, and you start to feel headaches but don't understand why you've been getting sick Lot, similarly, had chosen a place to live, to dwell, to raise his family, to pursue his fortune that appealed to his flesh. He liked it because it was well watered, that text said, and because it was close, close to these immoral cities. These cities that had been the object of God's condemnation for quite some time. But Lot liked living there, and he didn't just live adjacent to them. It appears, though that's what it was described as three chapters earlier, now it seems that Lot lives not only among the city inhabitants, but he's one of the chief leaders in the city. Though still perceived to be an outsider when arguments arise, Lot lives in the most central part of the city, uh, the part that is most significant. Uh, he is sitting at the gate of Sodom. That's not where hobos dwell. That's where elders and leaders in the ancient Near East were uh, sitting in positions of rulership, where bigwigs in the Bible, whether it's an Abraham-like character or Job, uh, those kind of people were at the city gates and they were in charge of the place. 
And what I see in this story that's of practical relevance to you, though I do think there's some apologetic value in seeing what the Bible says about particular sins and vices here, is I do see that we have to think about what it means to live in the world, but not of the world. That's what Jesus said in John 17 in His high priestly prayer to His Father. What does it mean to be in the world and not of the world? Because Lot got it wrong. And I wonder how many of you are getting it wrong. A little too close to Sodom. A little too compromised. And though your poison has been gradual, the evidences of it are very real. And I think that's what, what the point of this, this narrative is in Genesis 19. I just want to have you observe three, three simple matters here. And the first one, I, I think we should call it, I, I hope you would sense the danger of drifting. Sense the danger of drifting. And I see that in these opening verses, and I see it in the flow of the narrative, which I already talked to you about. Lot didn't stumble on this place. He chose it. This is where he wanted to live. He intentionally wanted to be on the edge of the land of God's promise. He could have gone right or left. Abraham left it up to him. But for some reason, his Eyes were drawn to this area because it was well watered. That would solve the problems he had with his flocks because animals need water and that was his economic prosperity. And so he lived there and he lived among them. You start to see more of the, the drifting happening in this story because Lot is just almost a comical figure in this place. The New Testament tells us that Lot, it calls him, and I think there's some tongue-in-cheek here, righteous Lot, this is in the book of Jude and Second Peter, was vexed by his surroundings. And the vexation Lot felt, that he was bothered by his sinful surroundings, never actually provoked him to do anything about it. He never thought, I- I'm going to leave this place. I'm going to get out of here. And when... The time came where he does actually have to leave. Lot has to be literally dragged by the wrist out of this place. Lot's family is so infected by the morality and mores of Sodom that his wife, her heart is so enraptured with that place is that she can't not look at it. She can't not turn back to it and she becomes this famous picture of compromise and looking over her shoulder as she's turned into a pillar of salt and is destroyed along with the inhabitants of Sodom. Lot's daughters, the same thing, though they were rescued by the compassion of God towards Abraham and then by association Lot, their debasement in verses 30 through the end of the chapter is going to lead to two nations, as so often is being traced in the book of Genesis. These aren't just stories about individual people, but about what these people will become. And Amnon will become, and Moab will become the two surrounding peoples that will 
allure Israel more than any other peoples into sexual immorality. And so it's a very interesting story reminding us that compromise isn't always an instantaneous thing. Sometimes it's very subtle. Sometimes it's very pernicious. And that kind of compromise can be like drifting. It isn't that Lot immediately entered into the city and became a, a leader there. This took time. This took compromise. This took an awareness of the kind of place he was living. And you see that in the story. Notice in verse 2, when he meets these guests, these angelic visitors sent as judgment of God on this place. He knew what kind of town he lived in because they were really content to sleep in the town square. I mean, they knew their mission. It was to destroy the city, to warn Lot and destroy the city. And so they thought town squares, right place to do that from, hit it in the middle. Lot knows that his neighbors are not very neighborly. And so he urges these guys in such a frantic way to quickly come into his house. Please turn aside into your servant's house. Spend the night. And then there's a lot of commentators who, who try to downplay the foulness of this scene and especially of Lot's offering of his daughters by saying, well, hospitality was really important in the ancient world. You know, that was so important. Like someone in your home was an inviolable guest. And so it was the right thing for Lot to offer his daughters to the crowd. Does that sound wrong to you? It should. Biblical ethics are never so otherworldly that that act of poor fathering would ever be commended in the Bible. Lot's offer betrays that Lot is really not that hospitable of a person. In fact, look at his initial offer. Verse 2, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, and then you may rise early and go on your way. <laughs> what kind of hospitality is that? You want to spend the night at my house? Well, not the weekend, just tonight. Also, I'll wake you up at 4. There'll be breakfast in a bag by the door. You can just go. In fact, don't wake me up. I'll set an alarm for you. Lock the door on your way out. Why the rush? Well, it's because this kind of behavior was expected in Sodom. This wasn't like a one-off experience. You see this also in the way the crowd is portrayed. Verse 4, all the people from every corner, both young and old, all press up against Lot's door. Lot's also trying to hustle them out here in verse Three, when he says that he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Well, you know what unleavened bread is, right? It's gross. What makes bread good is leavening. And what makes leavening is time. Yeast. It's what makes it fluffy and full of carbohydrates. When you make someone unleavened bread, it's like just a fast thing, like some smashed crackers on the run. So he's offering these guys something that's like, let's get you out of here because he knows what a compromising place he lives. 
You see, Lot has been drifting. He has been so acclimated to this place, to this city, that he doesn't have good sense about it. And when he finally warns his future son-in-laws, that's what that language means in that middle section, when he goes to them and gives a speech, which is about the compassion of Yahweh and the impending doom of Yahweh, they hear him talking about the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, and they think, Pops is, was he kidding? Because he didn't talk like this. The fact that he would offer his daughters to that foul crowd shows that the morality of Sodom had covered him almost completely. His priorities are so confused and his his compromise is so thoroughgoing that he becomes an example of what it looks like to live in the world and of the world. Have you ever met anybody named Demas? Is anybody named Demas in here? Have you ever known a Demas? Probably not. His name appears in the Bible twice in the New Testament. Colossians 4, he's part of the, like, the crew that Paul was with. Hey, Demas says, what's up? And then, in a sad turn of events, in Paul's very last letter, some years later, 2 Timothy is about to be executed. And before he is, he warns the people he's writing to, and Timothy and those who will hear the letter read, that Demas has abandoned me. He's deserted me. You remember what it says, why it says why? Because he loved this present world. That's Lot. Lot's like that. He's grown fond of this place. His standards have been compromised. His righteousness, though vexed by the presence of all this sin, wasn't enough to do anything about it. And so I think you perceive the danger of drifting in this chapter. And I think you see an example of how not to live in the world and not of the world. There are characters who do this better, you know. Joseph lived in the luxuriant opulence of Egypt. And he did not compromise, even though he lived in Pharaoh's house. Daniel was at the palaces of of Nebuchadnezzar in in Persia, Babylon. And, And Daniel was one who lived in the world, but not of the world. And so a, a mindfulness of how dangerous it is to compromise, to Look over that which used to offend you is, I think, one of the big warnings you have to take from the story of of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a second thing, and I'm only going to give you three of these, a second observation here. And it's this, I hope you would tremble before the severe judgment of God. Tremble before the severe judgment of God. That you would see the danger of drifting, but also that you would tremble before the severe judgment of God. Of God. And the judgment here is, is obvious. It's, it's brimstone. But it's not just cataclysmic judgment, it's also gradual judgment. So, in other words, God's judgment has been impending for some time. It's been delayed because of the prayers of Abraham. And it's even being delayed by these angelic uh, 
rotters of vengeance as they kind of prepare this messed up family to try to get them out of town. But the judgment of God as it's presented in the Bible is intended to make us tremble. That God is a God who actually is offended by sin. Hebrews 10.31 says that it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And when Sodom and Gomorrah is eventually destroyed in verse 23, it makes it very clear who's involved in this. Verse 24, then Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and became a pillar of salt. I mean, there's no even mediation described here, though the angelic visitors were there to prepare and help Lot and his loved ones escape. This judgment came directly from the hand of God and ultimately all judgment will. Do you understand, friends, that God will judge you? That every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ? And that God will judge you, friend, not because He's hard or tough, but God will judge you because He's right and righteous. And what He says is right and righteous is the perfect standard of morality for all His creatures. You see, God is not some grandfatherly figure of your imagination that lives in the sky. God is the creator of heaven and earth. He's the righteous king of all. And he has absolute authority over every single one of his creatures. And so when he says that something is evil and something is good, you would be wise to take his word for it. And in this chapter, the obvious sin is this homosexual gang rape that is being proposed. The other sins and compromises are, are evident. But the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is a significant one. It's one of sexual perversion. And just to make this really clear, the entire Bible is in one voice when it speaks of sexual immorality. Sexual mores in the Bible are clear and have continuity between both the Old and New Testament. I'll give you some verses if this is something you've wondered about. There is... Moral laws in the Old Testament as well as ceremonial laws, but right in the middle of the moral laws of the Old Testament in a chapter like Leviticus 18.22 or Leviticus 20.13, homosexuality is described as a sinful lifestyle, a sinful action. The New Testament continues with that same theme in Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Homosexuality is is condemned by God as a sin, as is all other forms of sexual immorality. In other words, in God's world, and whether you like it or not, this is His world, He claims it to be His own, that the only permissible sexual activity is in a covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Now that little paragraph that I just said is so absurd to a worldly so absurd to modern man, so offensive that it's hard for someone to hear a Christian say anything like that and not perceive it as hate. 
whether it's 1 Timothy 1.10, which also puts homosexuality on the, on the vice lists in the New Testament, or a passage like 1 Corinthians 6.9, sometimes the call for identifying sin as sin is not heard. Instead, it bounces off the ears of those who do not share God's standard. The problem is, is that God is the judge. That He tells us what He desires of us. If you were with us at church on Sunday, I was preaching on, I don't know what I was doing, but I was in 1 Corinthians 6 at some point. And I read you a verse, and I'd like you to look at it again with me. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. And this, is, this sounds just like you know, what they would say. Unbelievers today, hearing Christians talk about sexually immoral sins being identified by God as worthy of judgment along with all other sins. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 6.9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, that's a list that's pretty inclusive of, I would say, most everybody in this room. And I think Christians have to be mindful that they are objects of God's mercy because they were first objects of God's judgment and wrath. In order to rightly tremble before the severe judgment of God that is both at times cataclysmic in redemptive history and oftentimes gradual or being revealed, we have to be aware that we, that I, that you rightly deserve the judgment of God because of your sin. That you've alienated yourself from God because of your sinfulness. And whether that sin is lust or lying, whether that sin is stealing or idolatry, whether it's uh, homosexual lust or heterosexual lust, whether it's greed or drunkenness, whether it's sins of the mouth or sins of the mind, slanderers and swindlers, all of us are excluded because we are sinners by nature and by choice from the kingdom of God. But we also have to be aware that though that verse sounds like there's no hope for sexual perversion, that the very next words after reminding us that we have no hope of entering the kingdom of God if we're sinners. The very next verse in verse 11 says, but such were some of you. But such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you have even a tinge, which is a small amount, of self-righteousness in you, where you think that you are a better person than the inhabitants of this city, if you think you are morally superior to those who do not know Jesus, you need a bad case of such were some of you. 
before we worship God, we ought to go and look in the mirror and say, this is what I was before God saved me. Because if we weren't, we would have no hope. Jesus said, I have come not to call the righteous to repentance, but to call sinners. Jesus reminds us that sick people need doctors, not healthy people. So if you think you've got everything sorted, if you think you're quite a good person, then Jesus has nothing to offer you. But if you are full of an awareness of the reality of how much you have offended God, of how sinful you are, of how wrong you are, of how twisted you are, then God has wonderful news for you because He can wash you, He can change you, He can make you right and forgive you because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's no hope for sinners except for this one ray of hope in the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That if you trust Him by faith, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. There is no sexual deviancy that cannot be set right. There is no kind of transgression that cannot be nailed to the cross of Christ. In other words, you could be way worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah. Way worse off. You could have no hope. Matthew 11, verse 23 and 24. Just jot it down. You don't have to turn there. Matthew 11, 23 and 24. Jesus talks about another place that you probably haven't heard much about. You ran into it if you read your Bible in the New Testament one time. It's called Capernaum. Have you heard of it? Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus's not hometown, but home base. It's like the, the center of His operations where his disciples would like come back to. It's kind of where he based his preaching ministry out of. And he was often going back to Capernaum. He was well known there. Many of his miracles were performed in Capernaum. It was a central hub of Jesus's earthly ministry. Jesus told the people of Capernaum that if the miracles and teachings that they heard from him were done in Sodom, then that city would still be here to this day. Whoa. Apparently, there's something worse than Sodom. There's a worse sin than even sexual perversion. And do you know what it is? It's to hear the voice of Jesus. To see the work of Jesus and reject it. That's a far worse sin and a far worse place to be than to be one of those, Galatians 5.21, who practice such things. Until you admit that you're a sinner, you have no need for Jesus, the friend for sinners. Jesus who can wash you and forgive you and make you altogether His. Just a third thing to note in this passage back to Genesis 19. 
is the power, that you would treasure the power of prayer. I mean, this is kind of the whole direction of this story. Remember, the reason that Abram, the reason that Lot was spared is because Abram prayed for him. Look at verse 27 of Genesis 19. It says, Now Abraham arose early in the morning. Remember, he lived off in the distance, but up on the hill you could see the entire valley of the plains. Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before Yahweh. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. God answered Abraham's prayer. Not in the specific way Abraham prayed. There wasn't ten righteous people there. Not even close. Instead, God rescued those righteous people and spared them and had mercy on them. But the entire city was destroyed. Not even all of Lot's family made it. The power of Abraham's prayer, of his intercession before God, is manifest in a surprising answer. Not the way that Abraham thought it would be answered. He thought he whittled God down to the perfect number. Instead, this is the outcome. An outcome that leaves us all trembling and aware of the danger of drifting and how severe God's judgment is, but also an outcome that reminds us that when we pray, God hears us and He answers us according to His will. And though Lot tried to linger and stayed back and and wasn't believed by his sons-in-laws and lost his own wife in the process, he was rescued. Rescued to a a fate that potentially may have been worse than destruction in verses 30 through 38. But nevertheless, Lot was rescued. Lot, righteous Lot, who was vexed, but not vexed enough to do anything about it, is also mentioned another spot in the ministry of Jesus. And it has to do with how we think about compromise and prayer and judgment. Luke 17. Luke 17, verse 31. Jesus is preaching. And first He preaches about the days of of Noah. And then in verse 28, He says it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. 
Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Jesus in this moment, reminding his disciples in the crowds of a coming eschatological judgment, of a, of a final judgment where God will rain down his wrath on this world again, like he did on those two cities thousands of years ago. A day is coming that all of us should be warned about, that we should be careful to not linger in this world, to not let our hearts be left behind here, to not be allured and drawn into a worldly kind of thinking and not have it to be dragged by our wrists out to safety. Instead, to have this spirit of readiness, not like Lot's wife who turned back, who was so succumbed to her former manner of life that she had no desire to be rescued. We're warned to remember Lot's wife. That we ought not to turn back to our former manner of life. That Hebrews 10, 38 and 39 reminds us my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back or turn back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. To understand Jesus' prayer to be in the world is easy. Where else are you going to go? But to live in such a way that honors Jesus' intention before His Father to not be of the world is to protect your heart from drifting to worldly things. To be mindful of the severe judgment of God on sin will help us to take sin seriously and to know that God hears our prayers and He preserves the righteous. It's just another lesson in the faith of Abraham. A faith that urges every one of us to not turn back, but to press on to be saved. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that we have hope. Every one of us, sinners, by nature and by choice. We are those who practiced such things. 